for most people, and I mean 99.9% of the global population, consciousness is not a problem. They just take it for granted. And guess what? They're right. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host Nathan Rittenhouse. All right. To scare you away at first, we're going to talk about the mystery of consciousness. Oh boy. But actually, to make it practical, I think that this is at the center of many of our misunderstandings about artificial intelligence. I think it has a lot to do, I think it's actually at the center of the major question of our age, what does it mean to be human as well? And so lots of really practical outworkings here. But let me just start by saying something that I said to you earlier, Nathan. And Nathan really liked this a lot, so I'll say it here. For most people, and I mean 99.9% of the global population, consciousness is not a problem. They just take it for granted. And guess what? They're right. The good news is here, this is only a major philosophical problem if you've bought into a certain vision of reality. The problem is, though, and here's what I think we'll talk about this quite a bit on this episode. The problem is that a lot of us buy into it without realizing that that is what we're doing. Wait this a is second. part of what happens when you're formed by your culture. Are you it's, saying are yeah. you saying that we're subconsciously so, yeah, formed into thinking about consciousness? Because that's a little rich. Yeah, it's a little on the <laughs> nose. Ironic, yeah. Yeah, it's a little rich. Yeah, but I suppose so. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, spell it out. Convince but, me. Well, if you think of the universe in mechanistic terms, basically, consciousness. And I'll talk about let's let's define consciousness, I guess, a little bit. I think it's relatively self-explanatory. By consciousness, I don't mean anything special. I just mean, among other things, your subjective experience of the world. I mean also that your subjective experience of the world is a unified experience. That is, it's not strictly divisible. You can't cut it into little segments. This is a unified vision of reality that you have. I'm talking also about your self-awareness. I'm talking about intentionality. That's a really big one that you, when you're doing things, you're doing them, you're, you're directing your actions toward a specific end and there's a purpose in your actions. And as a side note, as a Christian, I'm also going to say that I think you're always seeking the good. Okay even if you're doing so in a way that's misguided? Let me throw a flag so on the that's, play here. That's, yeah, do it. No, that's, that's a good introduction. So I, here's the question I have, though, is do you, do you see a uniqueness to human consciousness as, a, as in degree or kind? And to, to ask that more specifically, because there would be other animals that notably would have a sense of themselves mm-hmm. Um, which is often used particularly in mm-hmm. animal rights as kind of a litmus test for consciousness of yeah. does is this a creature that understands that would recognize themselves in the mirror, for example. So it has kind of some sort of an external awareness of who they are and to some extent does have wills and uh, will and desire and has strategies and plans and enacts them. Now, I think it's overblown when we're talking about that most of the time in the animal world, but there there is some degree of that. I mean, even uh, in something as simple as your dog, mm-hmm. you would see some of those features. So 
is that a is that consciousness and then b is that consciousness different in degree or in kind from that of a human all right i'm gonna do it this is a total jerk maneuver let me turn it on you for a second because you <laughs> you've you actually have done quite a bit of study in the in the realm of of these especially in the area of animal rights so i would i'm curious about i mean i, I will absolutely give you my answer i'm curious about how you answer that one nathan because i yeah. know that question has been posed directly to you before so i think on the first one yeah you would say okay there's certainly mental activity that's happening um Mm -hmm. If human, if I, I'm very, very tempted to say that human consciousness is a different kind of consciousness. If it's only, if it's, if it's a different degree of consciousness, then it is an orders of magnitude different. So a couple of reasons for that. One is yeah. not, we, we don't have just an awareness of ourselves. We have an awareness of other selves, awareness of ourselves. And we also can form that mm -hmm. in complex language in relation to a complex system um i would say hmm i would say humans are unique in that our conscientiousness allows worship so there's an extra there's an extra spiritual component to our consciousness that makes it categorically different from that of an animal mm -hmm. so i don't want to demean the creativity of the created world as far as the animal world goes and we would overlap certainly on our subconscious processes sure our desire for food, reproduction, shelter, whatever. Um, but mm -hmm. I do think that humans have a, a whole nother, a, a whole nother category. And, and this is what I think actually makes this question challenging is on, on some hand on the com the, the common sense part, this is where it gets kicked up to the next level to say, yeah, but what is it about human conscientiousness that's different from, Be because if it's chemical and we reduce it just to, the chemistry of our brain, then our brain structures and, mm -hmm. and the the amounts of chemicals in the and the neural networks and pathways and the ways things are, are work together there aren't that different. So, give me ambiguity or give me something else. I'm going to go with human consci consciousness is shares some things in degree with the animal world, but is also categorically different. Yeah, and I I appreciate your hesitancy there because it's we're learning more and more about animal communication. But I, I think I'm also tempted. So I want to, you know, I want to respect that this is a growing field of research, particularly, correct me if I'm wrong, Nathan, it, the studies of, of chimps, for instance, mm -hmm. have yielded some, some similarities. There are some parallels there. But I agree with you. I actually like your turn of phrase there. Orders of magnitude different. I also, my strong hunch... And it's more than just a gut feeling. It's based on my own, you know, my experience of human life, the, yeah, the astounding intricacy and phenomenon of language, all of that. My, my hunch is that we're talking about a difference, not just in degree, but in kind. Well, hang on a second. But certainly so is, is that, that will come up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let's, let's push into this for a second, because I think you're about to take us in the direction of saying mm -hmm. that a reductionistic view of consciousness is part of this assumed idea that gives us more of a mechanistic look at. So do, maybe maybe I'm yeah. backtracking here. Is conscientiousness distinguishable from instinct in the sense that do you think there's a non-reductionistic component to a squirrel's brain? Um, 
in the same way that you do to a human brain? Or or can we take the, the physical animal world and say, sure. hey, we can explain their behavior by looking at their brain chemistry and brain patterns. That's not the same as what we can do with the human. I haven't thought of it in these terms before. There's a stronger so. correlation. No, but it's it's a helpful question. There's a, I would say, if, on the face of it, there certainly seems to be a much stronger correlation between instinctive impulses, survival instincts, and animal behavior. That is absolutely not the case with, with human beings. That's where we do fall into... I mean, based on our behavior, we fall into an entirely different category. You know, mm-hmm. you can you can use some of the trivial sort of joking examples, but there are no tigers gathered together at conferences pondering what it means to be a tiger. On the other hand, we write books about what it means to be a person and how to find your inner child and unleash your creative capacities and and be who you really are and discover who you are, discover your true identity. Our culture is tying itself in knots over the question of identity. Those are very unusual modes of behavior that you don't find anywhere else in the animal kingdom. Mm -hmm. But to backtrack just a little bit here, just so a reductive view of consciousness is is a concomitant or or sort of or it comes along it's a package deal with a mechanistic view of the universe or reality so the leading intellectual luminaries who people people like david chalmers or daniel dennett who are writing about consciousness and who other and who are somewhat household names which is unusual in a field like philosophy of mind but they are naturalists. They're thoroughgoing naturalists. So they have an ideological commitment to the notion that we can offer. You know, there's a physical. There needs to be a physicalist account of all human behavior. And so, for somebody like Daniel Dennett, for instance, consciousness as we experience it is really more of an illusion. It's not. It's not a, it's not a, it's, it's something that he, he will handily work to explain away. Uh, Sam Harris also. But my point here, Sam Harris also, yes. So my point here is you have a dilemma that's completely unnecessary. If you look at the universe in mechanistic terms, then consciousness becomes a huge problem for you. But if you don't, then, I mean, consciousness remains absolutely amazing and its richness is is just incredible and it's mysterious but it does it's not a huge problem for you and you're perfectly fine in taking for granted the fact that you have a unique subjective experience of the world and that it is a unified experience that you're capable of rational thought and that you're in ca- that you're capable of intentionality and that yeah there's some kind of link between your brain and your mind but you also just the common sense notion that you're never going to you know, rent, get intention out of physical processes is just, you can take that for granted. Firing of synapses in your brain is not going to yield some sort of an intention. And if somebody asks you a question or something and a certain region of your brain lights up, you know, if they're testing you, sure, that's really interesting. Sure, yeah, there, there are some, there's some physical, you know, there's some activity, there's some physical event going on, but in no way, does that explain, does that give you access to the content of the thoughts in a person's head or explain, much less explain them away? Let, let, let me just follow up on what you're saying there, because the, and herein lies one of the key distinctions where the phrase artificial intelligence is nowhere near to artificial consciousness is that um, 
contrary to what you may have heard, you can't scientifically read somebody's mind or brain. So you can track the electrical flow and look at the um, excitement levels or basically the blood flow changes in certain parts of people's brains. And you can say, oh, this person's depressed or this person's excited or this person's afraid. I mean, you can kind of get those general categories, but it's not like you can capture this, the electrical signals, pulses in the brain, extrapolate those out on the computer screen, and then be able to read and say, here's what this person's thought is. However, if you were to capture mm-hmm. a, a segment of data in the process of an artificial intelligence system, you could extrapolate that exactly out word for word onto a screen. So we, we can take the bits of the electrical data within an artificial intelligence algorithm and know exactly what it's doing. We're nowhere close to being able to do that with a human. So the, the way the packaging of the information as it travels through your mind on the conversation of consciousness is fundamentally not, there's not a computer analogy or a mechanistic analogy that we've discovered yet that we could say it's like this because it's not like anything else that mm-hmm. we know about yet. Well, and speaking of analogy, I want to bring in metaphor now because it's our metaphors tend to take us for rides. And we have been in the habit for several years now of thinking about our minds or thinking about our brains and then our, you know, by extension, our minds as computers. And we also are in the habit. So there's a twofold thing going on. We tend to think about our brain as a computer. I think Daniel Dennett is the one who gives us the the phrase syntactical engine. That's his word for it. Romantic. But the we also yeah, very romantic. We also have a tendency to talk about technology in anthropomorphic terms. We and this is I think I've told you this Nathan. I am a real stickler about this with my children. So if Somebody note, brings everyone. up Alexa and happens to say she, yeah, happens to say she, I try always, no, 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 this is not a she, this is a program, it's it's an it. And then, so now they're, they're even at the point where they'll look at me, I know, dad, it's an it, and they'll roll their eyes. But these conversations are having to happen more and more because we use human language to describe our machines. We talk about our computers having memory. We talk about our computers thinking. And these are not insignificant phrases. They're not, they're not innocuous. They're not harmless. In a certain, to a certain extent, you know, we have to use, we've got to use analogies. We've got to use metaphors to communicate and to talk, especially if we're talking about, you know, some sort of abstract processes and, and things like that. But they do have a pronounced tendency to mislead us. And we see that over and over again. And it, you know, another way you can look at this, Nathan, is if you look at some of our, particularly a lot of our movies, which sort of <laughs> further blur the lines for the sake of, of, of stories where, you know, you have fully conscious machines that are taking over. But all of that is basically resting on a very emaciated vision of what consciousness actually is. And it, it does tend to affect us. And again, I, I said this earlier, we Christians, just, to, just like everybody else, tend to imbibe the assumptions of our culture because they're drilled into us relentlessly. It's not like you sit down one day and you make a conscientious decision. Aha, I shall now 
look at myself in reductive terms. I'm going to have a reductive view of consciousness, and this is going to color my perception of human interaction. No, of course not. No, this, this is, these are tacit assumptions that are just hammered in, and it's kind of death by a thousand cuts. So I like Susanna Black Roberts, who writes for, she's one of the editors at Plow Magazine. She, she, she tweeted this a while ago, back on, you know, on the artist formerly known as Twitter. But she, she said that this, the key challenge of our age will be to be human, to be fully human. And obviously we're all, you know, we can't not be human, but, you know, not acting as though we're machines, not treating other people like machines, not treating people in mechanistic terms, not treating people like kind of glorified computers. I think that's, I think that's right. And so I think consciousness is also at the, it's, it's at the forefront of a lot of our debates about what it means to be human as well. We tend to go immediately in the direction of identity and sexuality, and those are massively important. But consciousness is here too as a very important topic, which is, so this couldn't well, you be know, more you practical. Know, and you know why, Part right? Why I'm bringing it up. Be because when you look at the animal world, let's talk about running, jumping, swimming, staying warm in cold conditions, uh, certainly flight. I mean, you can find an animal that is better at you, better than you at almost any physical category you can conceive of. Height, weight, yep. speed, strength, um, navigation, wh whatever. I mean, the animal world is phenomenal. But it is, so why we immediately tend toward consciousness is because it seems to be the one where humans like or are, you know, just excel in an entirely different category. So I think it's right that our conversation is there. It's also a little weird. Um, you know, it's kind of like this idea of time. Everybody knows what it is until you start thinking about it. That. This is tied philosophers mm -hmm. and knots for sure. millennia, so we're probably not going to get it sorted out here other than to say your thesis, Cameron, is interesting in the, in the sense that you're saying it's it's not really a necessary question unless you accept a certain um, restrictive set of conditions. I'm, I'm still trying to think through that. I yeah. think you might be right. Well, what that is, I'll, no, I mean, I'm going to give you the history of that real quickly to, to try to... Yeah, to give you a little bit more justification for that claim. Essentially, I'm going to make another really big claim here, but I've got some historic evidence for, for all of these. From time immemorial, human beings have taken it for granted that we have, that there's a spiritual dimension to humanity and that there is such, such a thing as a, a soul that... Consciousness is a vital part of, of who we are. I mean, everybody from, you can look to ancient Greece for very sophisticated thought on the matter. You can look to the, the East, Indian philosophy, especially the Upanishads, for instance. There are some amazing distillations and explorations of the mystery of consciousness. And lest you think that I'm some great scholar of, the, of you know, Indian philosophy or anything like that, I'm not. I've... David Bentley Hart has been a very helpful guide <laughs> in this process. And he's working on a book on this right now, by the way. And one of Hart's areas of expertise is actually Eastern religions because he's David Bentley Hart is ridiculous. He's, he is very versatile as a thinker and just he's immensely gifted as an intellectual. But his book, The Experience of God, has a really excellent section on consciousness in it. And this is where I, I drew a lot of my my insights. He's also at work on a new book for Yale University Press 
on consciousness, which he's structured as a dialogue, which should be really fun. But anyway, all that all that to say is you have you have this ancient you have a wonderful ancient pedigree for great thinking on consciousness where it was it was taken for granted. You have beautiful systems of thought around it. It's really the scientific it's it's the later the latter part of the sort of the repercussions of the scientific revolution that where a mechanistic view of the universe was so I want to be careful with this because there's a usefulness to this. So to a certain extent, some of some of the hard sciences work really well. And Nathan, you can say a lot about this. You know more about this than I do. They work really well when you narrow the lens a little bit and you subtract mind or consciousness from whatever it is you're studying. And you look at it in terms of, you know, sort of a causal change, cause and effect. It's, and you look at it in mechanistic terms. So that, that was understood to be a scientific tool for a while. And it was, it was, it was deployed mm -hmm. in very specific contexts. It wasn't seen as a worldview. But what, of course, happens, and this happens over, slowly over the years, as people begin seeking some sort of unified theory of all-being, and then eventually you come to a place, okay, once upon a time and then, but you come to a place where people believe that, say, the study of physics will yield a full transcript of reality. You could, but you and I would stand back there and just say, well, that's really just based on a category mistake because physics can't possibly, it's not even meant to explain all of reality. But so when you, when you do that and you blow this mechanistic view, which is a scientific tool for investigating certain phenomena, when you turn it into a full worldview and everything comes under that umbrella and everything has to be seen in those terms, then you have created for yourself all sorts of problems because there's so much you have to explain away. And so, consciousness is one of those things. I'll give you some examples here. Um, Does that make... Yeah. yeah, so the... On one hand, though, I mean, you go back even Plato, you're, There's there's been some pretty l deep wrestlings about what is the most real, what's true, what's the fundamental, back even in Aristotle, first principles, prime mover, sure. what's behind all of this. I mean, um, Plato is the great duel. He's the great duelist. Yeah. So yeah. So you read Psyche in your sophomore philosophy classes and all that. But um, and there were people during that time who thought in reductionistic terms that it's all just down to atoms and there would be these little pieces that congeal together and that explains Democritus, all of reality. Yeah. yeah. Democritus was. So I mean, that was a pretty long time ago, and he was close to where we are in our modern thinking. Um, so there's a bit of that going on. The to. Just to give to put some practical legs under some of the ideas you were saying there, I and you're talking about the reductionism that's necessary for some of our forms of study, um, and I think there have been physicists that have pursued that string theory and other ways of of looking at reality. But I remember one mm -hmm. time a uh, I was having lunch with some guys. Some were theologians, and this was my college. Some were theologians and philosophers, and some were physicists. And um, that's always a good lunch time. And what was interesting is the physics yeah, professors were Christians and the philosophy and religions eh, is a little murky there. Um, and one of the physics professors said to one of the theology professors, um, well, and, and respond, I can't remember what the question was, but the physics professor said, well, what do you know about grace or what can you say about grace? And the theology professor says, Oh, I don't know anything about grace. That's outside of my field of expertise. 
Um, and I and I was just dying laughing listening to that, where you have like somebody who was a had a PhD in theology, but had narrowed the scope of their focus mm-hmm. so far down into the minutia that they couldn't give a comment on. Yep. Oh, I don't know anything about grace. That's outside my field of you know. And so the problem with a reductionistic worldview is that it narrows the size of your world down to something smaller than what you can actually live in. And that's why the common sense model yeah. has proliferated because I don't I don't want to say just yeah. the sheer pragmatism of it, but the functionality of being able to have an integrated and expansive the livability. View, the livability of it is extremely low in a reductionist. Yeah. Hey, here's another example. Um, I was listening to, and I may have mentioned this before, a guy, I think this was an NPR radio thing, I was driving somewhere, and there was a, a neuroscientist who was talking about how freedom is an illusion and that it can, you know, our choices can come down to mm-hmm. chemical, you know, very reductionistic. And the interviewer yep. was shrewd. And he said to the guy, he said, so does that mean that your grandfather shouldn't have gotten a purple heart for courage in the war? And you could you could hear the <laughs> yeah. scientist stuttering here because everything that he was pontificating mm-hmm. was yep. is that his grandfather wasn't courageous. He just did. He was just dancing to the chemicals in his mind. And it's right. Like, do you give a purple heart to someone for courage or, you know, a medal of honor for courage and, well, a purple and heart the- for being wounded in that? So like right. that's a to me, that's a good example of this. Like, oh, yeah, here's where we're just talking out of our mouths. But then when we actually try to live it out. Well, nobody actually thinks that. You can't. I mean, just like a while ago, this was a fairly recent interview. I suppose he was in his 70s. He's in his 90s now. Noam Chomsky, you know, the famous linguistic scholar. Would somebody asked him about a debate he had with Michel Foucault about moral relativism, and he just said, nobody's a moral relativist. And remember, Noam Chomsky's not a Christian. And then the interview was a little taken aback. He was, oh, no, on a practical level, how would how would anybody be a moral relativist? You can't live and be a moral relativist just to get around in this world. Nobody is a moral relativist. Nobody, There's nobody who believes in pure determinism on a practical level. You can't. It you can get a matter. research grant for it, though. <laughs> you absolutely get a research grant for it. And you can write – See, here's here's the other thing. You can write a monograph that is very internally consistent – but internal consistency is not necessarily a good and noble thing. Peter Craved once pointed out, I love this. Somebody said, and this was about Peter Singer, <laughs> well, he's remarkably consistent, and that's really admirable. And Peter Craved, well, what's so great about consistency? There might be somebody out there who says, I'm Jesus Christ, you know, who's locked up in an asylum, and he's very inter- internally consistent with his story. Nevertheless, mm-hmm. it's not a very particularly noble story, and he's completely deluded. In fact, he's a lunatic. So I think. You know, internal consistency only takes you so far. You have to take it with a grain of salt. And some of these stories are so inherently, they take you in such silly directions. And so if that sounds disrespectful, I do happen to believe that scientific naturalism takes you into some very incoherent territory because you are forced. We can't, I don't think we can overstate, Nathan, how hard it actually is to be a consistent atheist how much Mm. of human experience you have to explain away. You've got to find ways to say, oh, yeah, your your perception of the redness of a rose, yeah, that's an illusion. Oh, your feelings of love toward another person, yeah, that's that's also an illusion. The the sense of moral agency and freedom that you have in your everyday interactions, yeah, also all illusions, not not real. Well, you know. 
Yeah, well, so even, but there's probably uh, no 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 God, so you should lighten up. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, like, there are some who live on the border of despair of trying to be consistent. So somebody distant relative who's attempts to live very consistently as an atheist would say, "Look, my child is sick and is dying. They're not one of the fittest ones. They shouldn't survive, according to the way I look at the world. But my mm, mother's heart breaks yep. down, and I take him to the doctor." And wrestling with the struggle of like what she thinks is actually best for the species and what she thinks is a mother and feeling like those things are intention, that would be a hard thing to live with. So to, to loop this back Very, around then, I mean, yeah, I need to be careful here too. Well, no, well, Peter Crave kept his kept his mother on life support. Yeah. And reporters but, asked him about that on numerous times and he said, I'm just being inconsistent. The the thing here is though that the internal all fantasy is internally consistent. Good fantasy is, but we call it fantasy because it doesn't correspond Peter, to reality. Peter Singer, sorry, not Craved. Right? Yeah, I was thinking, yep. why is yep. Peter Craved not being consistent? Yeah, but um, no, no, not Peter Craved. <laughs> <laughs> the um, so the you know what I'm saying? So fantasy yep. is internally consistent, but it doesn't correspond to reality, and we call it fantasy. And then there are things that we think correspond to reality, but are inconsistent. And those are just individual experiences that don't fit into, that's when you know you're going crazy when you're the only one who has a certain experience. Um, sure. So sure, the livability sure. of it is important, but let's, let me throw in some ideas here that I think if you look biblically speaking at what a human is, let's try to, since we're not going to answer this scientifically anytime in the near future, I, I think when I was a little kid, my grandpa once said to me, if you can't look through a microscope and see your mind, you won't be able to look through a telescope and see God which is an interesting good. Yep. inverse. Um, so if you want to know what's wrong with me, it's having a grandfather who said mm -hmm. things like that to me when I was a little kid. Um, but it but it points against the reductionism, right? Of saying there are physical things you can see through a telescope, yep. but that you're not going to find God there. And there are chemical and physiological mm -hmm. things you can see in your mind, but in your brain, but you're not going to find your mind there. Um, is to say you have these ideas in scripture where, let's go with Psalm 1, um, and on his law he meditates day and night. So you have a, a phrase, I think it's called a mirrorism, actually. When you look at opposites, so day and night, the, the, the intent there is to say that here's somebody who thinks about the laws of God all the time. And so the way that you say all the time is you put the opposites in there. So day and night, and on his law he meditates day and night. Mm -hmm. He's like a tree, you know, um, all the time. And you use those opposites in order to encapsulate that. I think when Jesus comes along and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's not listing out subcategories of what it means to be human that we can take apart. He's, he's giving it an, kind of an expansive totality of an integrated whole. So I don't like, mm -hmm. there aren't times in which you can love the Lord with your strength without your soul or your mind being involved. And you can't love with your mind without your body being like, it gets ridiculous when we try to take a reductionistic view. So mm -hmm. I would say that from the words of Jesus himself, we have this highly integrated view of what it means to be a human, which gives us the phenomenal capacity to, all right, think about the prayer requests that are offered up at your church last Sunday and will be offered up this Sunday. It's going to be um, so-and-so has cancer and they're seeing an oncologist. Let's pray for them. And only a Christian can say that mm -hmm. with a straight face because you're looking at, okay, there's a physical component to what's going on here and who I am, and we need trained doctors and we thank God for the people going for surgery and we ask the Lord to guide the surgeon because we recognize that they're fallible and that things can go wonky, um, that the surgery would go well. And so we have this total compatibility between the physical and the spiritual 
in the way that we pray, in the way that we envision ourselves. And then also, let's talk just a little side note on mental health here. Is mental health chemical or spiritual? Yes. Can be the answer mm. to both of those. Um, and yes. I think it takes real wisdom yes. as a counselor to be able to parse that out of what's what and what's really going on there. But as a Christian, we shouldn't be surprised that sometimes medication helps. Um, and we also shouldn't be surprised that sometimes our problem isn't medical, but it's spiritual. So there's a way in which this idea that we're fearfully and wonderfully made is more true than we actually know, but allows us to live with a an expansive rather than a reductionistic concept of what it means to be human, which I think is more internally consistent, is more coherent, and is far more livable and pleasurable. Um, so even if you wanted to look at it pragmatically, yeah, I'm happy. Yeah. And just a few words here real quickly as we wrap this up on the practical importance of seeing persons as persons. Machines are means to an end. Machines also are basically slaves to us, and we use machines. If we look at human beings like machines, we have a ser- we have a very serious problem. And if we're in my argument is that many of us, by default, tend to think in mechanistic terms about persons. And we need to make sure that we recognize persons as persons and that we interact with human beings. We don't ever want to use human beings. And we can point to some of our really lamentable habits in our in our culture, one of the most conspicuous being pornography, with which is just mm-hmm. a massive industry and the consumption on that is so high. But we we need a restored vision of a holistic picture of humanity. Yeah, and but is- is there is that it, takes work? You're about to say something wise and bring this to a conclusion, but is there a sense in which okay, we make machines, we don't make humans? Now we're involved in reproduction, so there's a sense in which we're, ah. we're but the the idea of of what do we create and what do we control? A machine is nice because mm. it does what we want it to, and humans don't. And so I think there's a tendency to ah, try to we, exercise some subconscious yeah. false narrative of control by Im- imbuing mechanistic terms on something that God created, not something that we manufactured. Just a hunch. Well, I do, but in- yes, but increasingly, I think we do look at people, even there, we don't make them in the ultimate sense, but we do tend to think of our identity as our own property these days. And so... You know, there is a there is a remarkably plastic aspect to to human life. So you can you can go to a gym and remake your body in a sense, and you, you can, can learn another language. You can tattoo your body. You you can alter it. You can yeah, you can do that. You can I mean all sorts of cosmetic ways to do that. You can change your name. You can so all of these are again kind of instrumental strategies that we that we have of treating ourselves as, you know, others and ourselves as objects. And that it's so it's so endemic. Some of these we don't even think about. I mean, there there's you know, you'd think physical exercise, that's a good thing, right? It can be. It can also be abused and become a form of, you know, control and it's sort of well, I think Paul Another said physical of training you... is of some value. So Correct. it's of some value, yeah. it's just not a God. And it if doesn't a, make yes, you one. Yes, if it's, if, it's 
correct. If it's a means to an end and not and not a god in of itself, in other words, not an idol to you. So even there though, because we we our our remarkable technologies allow us to alter ourselves in radical new ways, ways we couldn't in the past. And again, none of these are neutral. They all tend to change the way we think and reshape our understanding of reality. So we just have to be careful that our heads are on straight with all of this, you know? And so once again, what's the answer? Well, the answer is pray, read your Bible and go to church. Mm-hmm. It is the, I mean, that, the, that is the answer. Yes, you can read some, occasionally you could read something by David Bentley Hart, or, but not everybody needs to do that. The, re, the real three things that we all need to do are talk to God and read, read his word, which is the primary, which is still, I don't, I don't care where you fall in your denominational spectrum, it's still the, that's the main place the Lord has chosen to communicate to you. I'm not saying he doesn't communicate other ways, ways, of course he does. Even Presbyterian Cameron recognizes that. <laughs> But then, and then go to church. Yeah, because <laughs> this is, you. This is what we need to do to get in touch with reality. Because you can download a podcast, but you can't download virtue. Yeah. So, this has been. We didn't. We didn't talk about AI that much here, but I think all of this actually has a bearing. If you, you're not a machine. If you people. think about this conversation, you, right? You can see how this. You can see how it's bearing on that on the on the topic of AI and how we often. I think some of our misunderstandings about the threat there are predicated on a misunderstanding of consciousness. But we'll come back to this. Well, maybe we'll talk more about AI next time as well. But we hope this is this has been helpful to you. If you're interested, I would suggest David Bentley Hart's book, The Experience of God. Its subtitle is Being Consciousness and Bliss. It is a David Bentley Hart book. So therefore, you're, you'll have to put your thinking cap on. To my mind, that's a good thing. So if you want to do, dig a little deeper, I would recommend that. It's a great place to go. But thank you for listening. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, Whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.